0: You know, in my household, amongst my family, myself, my wife, and my son, we tell each other, I love you, I, I don't want to exaggerate, I would say approximately 30,000 times a day. I mean, this is something we're always saying. We, we, we don't hide it. We love each other and we let each other know. And I think that's good. I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't trade it for anything. The scriptures tell us in Proverbs 27, better is open rebuke than hidden love. It is not good to keep love hidden away. And I always wonder when people are so reticent to say these words, and I know people have been burned by someone who said them before, that there are people who, who say, I love you, and they don't show it, they don't live it, and that's not good either. There are even people who might use it as kind of an emotional blackmail or to manipulate people. You know, I love you. And yet, even in that case, if someone is married and I find that there's a husband and wife who don't say I love you to each other every day, it blows my mind, it boggles my mind. How are you not saying this to one another? Maybe start like right now, or parents who don't tell their children, I love you, I love you. It's so important for kids to hear that message. You can assume they know, well, they see all that I do for that. Well, maybe they don't. Yeah, but it would be weird because in our family, we don't really say that. And if we started, it'd be strange now. And yeah, for like the first two or three times, then it would be normal. Being a parent, being a a, a wife or a husband means having to do some things out of your comfort zone a little bit if you want to do it well. But I really don't get the pastor who doesn't tell his congregation, his people, that he loves them. Or that she loves them. It just, that, that one really gets me. You, I expect you to believe that, that God loves you when I tell you, but I don't know if I really... I mean, I assume that they assume that I love... Well, maybe not. And maybe you're the only one who says, I love you to this person or that and shows them love in their life. These things are very important. I think it's important for people to man up, woman up, and just pull off the Band-Aid and say those words. It's not that hard. And when I bring this up, you know, on a week like this, it's when we've ratcheted up in my household, because my wife is far away this week, she spent the whole week in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, writing a book, having a wonderful time, we're so excited she's coming home this evening, we're good to see her again, but the whole time, because she's far away, we've been text messaging, calling Marco Polo messages, I love you, I love you, I love you, all the time, because when you're far off, you really need that reminder. And this reminds me to the last time I was here, we opened the text together. It was in Ephesians. We were in Ephesians 2, and we were seeing that we, Gentile believers, were far off from God, isolated from Israel, alienated from the promises, etc., etc., and yet the message comes through loud and clear, rippling through the distance from God, saying, I love you. You Gentiles who are far off, you idolaters who are worshiping false gods, there still is love for you. There is infinite love to give. And as this message goes out, those who are far off are drawn near, near unto the presence of God. And that message is in the scriptures again and again and again. And God gives the ears to hear that good news. And it is there so frequently. I mean, God's word, in terms of saying I love you and expressing love, God's word makes my family look like one of those 90s movies about like a New England boarding school and all the fathers are distant and they're like, well, everyone we know is dead, but uh, chin up and uh, best of luck, son. But it's again and again and again and again and again. God's love is hammered home. We'd have to try to miss it. And you know, we were far off indeed, but there's such a beautiful paradox here in God's word because when we are in the book of Acts, you remember about a year ago, we were reading in this chapter of Acts where Paul the apostle is up on Mars Hill talking to Gentiles. In fact, these are the Gentiles. These are super Gentiles. All right, they're, they're Greek philosopher idolaters. They've got a God for everything and they spend all their time talking Greek philosophy. If there is a, a poster boy for Gentiles, it's them. So they're far off. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, and yet when he talks to them, he says that he would that they would seek for God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. They're far off, but God is not far from each one of us. What a beautiful paradox. What we see here is the difference between a rift between two parties where they're both unwilling to make peace and a rift where one side is reaching out for reconciliation. One side is saying, please, I love you. Come back. Let's come together. There's that old sermon illustration. I'm sure you've heard it. You've probably heard it from me. It's in Mexico City. I think it's told as if it were a true story every time. And there was a guy and his son, Pablo, had become estranged. Like we're told in Ephesians 2, that we were estranged from God. And his father longed for a relationship And so he put an ad in the newspaper because he didn't know even where to find his son. And it it was was simply a, a big box that said, Pablo, all is forgiven. Meet me tomorrow in the city market, your father. And he showed up hoping to find his son the next day. And instead, he found 150 Pablos, all having seen this message and wanting to be reconciled. And whenever I hear that, I always assume there were probably... 300 more pablos who saw the message and their hearts were hard and they thought no i'm not going i don't i don't care and that's the case with the gospel as well but for those who are given ears to hear we are brought near though we were far off by our own doing by our own choice we see this illustrated in that that passage that steve read for us from john chapter 3 when nicodemus comes under cover of darkness he is not a gentile at all he's the opposite of these super gentiles And he is a teacher in Israel. He is a member of the high council, the Sanhedrin. He should know everything he'd need to know, and yet he comes to Jesus for instruction, and he comes by night. And even though he's not a Gentile, it's clear there is some far-offness here. You don't come under cover of darkness to talk to Jesus if you feel like we're tight already. No, this is if there's some space, some kind of a chasm there. And he comes to Jesus, and they talk together, and Jesus tells him how he must be born again And then Jesus says these wonderful words that so many of us have memorized as little children or as adults. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is good news for those who are far off. Perhaps today you are feeling far off. Perhaps you're you're watching through a screen and and wishing that you were together with the, the saints, but you're not quite comfortable with it because of all that's going on in the world and you think oh my goodness I'm feeling lately a space and I get that between myself and God know that you he is not far from you reach out and touch him or perhaps you're even right here but when you walk into a church and you open a hymnal and you you listen to the word it just seems distant it doesn't it doesn't seem personal it seems like you are far off well our God is the one who comes and finds those who are far off this is why if you grope in the darkness you will find him because he is not far from you he's been finding you the scriptures are full of these stories hagar for example hagar uh way back in the book of genesis you'll remember abraham was promised you will have a son he'll become a great nation and he says yeah my, my wife's like a hundred and god says don't worry i'm god and both of them start to worry. And she says, you know, probably what God meant was there's this custom in the ancient Near East where you can take my handmaiden and lay with her. And if she has a child, the child is counted as mine. Probably what God, God thought we'd figure it out. And so Abraham and Hagar go and do this. And she is with child. And as soon as this happens, she starts to change in her countenance. And remember, she thinks, I might have some value here. I might actually be a human being. And as Sarah, Abraham's wife, sees this happening, she starts to get angry. She goes to Abraham and she says, you know, get rid of of her. He says, do what you want. She's your handmaiden. Great leadership there, Abe. And so, you know, when I was remembering this story, I've read the Bible countless times. I've read this story many, many, many times. I was remembering it as Sarah said, get out of here. You have to leave. That's not what the text says. It says she dealt harshly with her and she fled. She dealt harshly with her own pregnant servant who was pregnant by no choice of her own, but because of unbelief on Sarah's part until she fled. And and when you hear fled, it's not like she was like, you know what, I'm leaving Lansing and going to Mason. It's lovely there. No, I'm leaving where we are and going into the desert probably to die. And as she left, she came upon a spring, and there she sat down, and we're told the angel of the Lord came to her. Any idea who that is in the Old Testament? The angel of the Lord, I can tell you with almost pure certainty, is a a pre-incarnate Christophany, appearance of the Lord Jesus himself, who says to her, I know how you're feeling right now. I know why you're far off and why you're headed further off, but I will remember you. Your son will be a great nation. I will care for you. You're forgotten by everyone else. I won't forget you. And he sends her back. He loves her. He finds her. He cares for her. He expresses his love for her. In fact, this is the story of of no less than Moses himself. The great Moses, that whenever Jesus got into a fight in the New Testament uh, with one of the teachers of the law, debate over this or that, or accusations are flying, they're saying, well, we follow Moses. What's Moses' story? Well, of course, he was in Egypt when all of Israel was there as slaves. And Moses was raised in Egypt, but not like the rest of them. He'd been drawn up out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in Pharaoh's court with all this privilege and things. And at one point, Moses saw an Egyptian uh, beating an Israelite slave. And he was like, I can't take it anymore. Grabbed the guy, killed him. And then he was like, oh, no, I've got to leave. I've got to run. I've got to flee. And so he fled for his life. He went to Midian, and when he got to Midian, which is way, way, it's like one of the, the top of the UP or something, like just get, get out here into the sticks. He married, he started a new life there. He was a, a, a fairly happy person, I guess, but he had left behind his people. He had left behind his adopted people, Egypt even. He had he left behind that whole struggle, the knowledge that, that his people were in slavery, and he left behind all the gods. The happiness would have to have been surface at best, because he left behind the true God of Israel who had plans for him. Of all the gods in Egypt, and there's one everywhere, there's a God for everything, only one came to find Moses, and that's the true God, Yahweh, who appeared to him in a burning bush and said, Moses, essentially, I still love you. I still love my people. I've not forgotten my covenant with them, and I am setting about delivering all of you, and you're going to play a major role in it. This is the sort of thing that our God does. You know, everyone in, in Israel would point to Moses as such a great figure, but his story starts as being far off. And then God's resounding, I love you, closing the space and God drawing him near and using him. And for Moses, it went beyond just being far off. The far offness became his identity this is who he was. When God said to him, I will use you, he didn't say, great, I'm ready to go. No, he'd been 40 years far off in Midian. That's almost as long as I've been alive. And so at that point, he said to him, I, I, I'm not your guy. You got me confused with somebody else. I don't know you. I don't even know your name. What if they ask how well I know you? I can't instruct them. I, I, don't, I don't speak well. I stutter when I try to talk. And he had all these, all these reasons because he'd gone beyond feeling not worthy to feeling worthless in the eyes of God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you hear the good news and you've heard it a lot of times, God loves you, and yet you can't quite absorb it. When I was visiting the Anyarts this week, Bill started to tell me about his, uh, his Christian testimony. You heard it. He came and shared it with us several years ago. If you were with us, you you were blessed with that. He told me that as a child he had been taken to church again and again and again and heard the gospel again and again and again. It was one of these Southern Baptist churches type thing where they come to the front and pray. And every time he heard it, he thought, I believe it. I believe God loves people, but I don't think he could love me. I believe God saves people, but he's not going to want me. He's not going to save me. He'd been abandoned, you know this. He'd been been, uh, abused in foster home situations. He'd been made to feel worthless. And he thought, forget it. This is for other people. God would not want me. The Bible is full of these stories as well. Think of Zacchaeus. If you know anything about Zacchaeus, it's that he was a wee little man and that a wee little man was he. But he also was a very rich man, right? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. So even though he was a wee little man, he was living large and uh, he was hated by pretty much all the israelites around him all the all the jews that lived in the town of jericho where he lived and so he probably kept completely to himself in his very nice house with all of his very nice things but one day he heard that jesus would be passing by and he said to himself i don't know why but i feel a pull to go and see jesus i gotta i gotta see him but at the same time he he did not want to approach jesus he wanted to be under the radar on the fringes Now, the New Testament is full of stories of rich people, especially rich men, who they think because they're rich, they are so powerful, so important, that they should have the best place up front, the best seat at the banquet. They should be front and center. Zacchaeus knew deep down all of that was meaningless and sensed that he was worthless. And so as Jesus walked by, he climbed up into a sycamore tree. You probably know the song, good song. And there he sat until Jesus walked not by, but started walking as if the goal had been just to go to that tree. Walked right up to him, said, Zach, man, come down. Don't you remember? I'm staying at your house tonight. That's insane. Now, when we talk about table fellowship, and I always emphasize, remember, it's no big deal for us to eat with someone. You know, you go to the food court, or you go to one of these hipster restaurants, everyone's around one table or something. In that culture, table fellowship was a big deal. Well, this when someone says, I'm going to stay with you, you can see how that would be a big deal. I'm going to stay in your house, which means if you're unclean, I become unclean. I'm going to stay in your house, which means I'm essentially in that culture putting a stamp of approval on you as a guy. And everyone who saw this happen began to mutter and say, he is becoming the guest of a sinner. And they started to doubt. Maybe, maybe he's not who we thought he was. But when Jesus walked into his home, rather than becoming defiled by it, He said, salvation has come to this house today, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. This again is the kind of God we serve. When Peter saw the miracle of the fish, fell down at Jesus' feet, said, get away from me, I'm a sinful man, Jesus said, come here, come close to me, stay close to me. I'm going to take care of that, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. There are people in the scriptures who think they're worthless because they look at themselves and are horrified, and there are people in the scriptures who are told they are worthless long enough and begin to believe it. I think of the woman with the issue of blood, who for 12 years was hemorrhaging blood, went to doctors, and this always horrifies me, whatever rudimentary medicine they had made things worse, she says. The church has called this woman Veronica. They thought she should have a name because she's so important, but we're not told her name in the scriptures and she probably would have been happy with that. She did not want to be known. She wanted to be, again, under the radar because she felt worthless. And she knew if she went up to Jesus, he would look at her. She just knew it. And he would say, you're unclean. I can't heal you. I can't touch you. I can't be near you. Back off. But if I can sneak up through the crowd like a ninja, just touch the the end of his garment they had these four tassels that hung down off their garments part of the religious dress if i could just touch the hem of his garment maybe i could be healed and nobody would know and so she went up and she touched the hem of his garment in the midst of all the crowd pressing in on him and he stopped and said who has touched me and peter said master the crowd's pressing in all around you everybody touched you and he said no no healing power went out of me Who has touched me? And we read in Luke chapter 8, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He wasn't going to let her think this might have been some fluke thing. No, he wanted her to know, I love you. This is one more of those I love you's from God to people who are far off and worthless in their sight in the scriptures. There are more of these guys. We discovered this at Men's Group. You know how you read the Bible again and again and again and you're like something that never sunk in suddenly hits you anew? We were reading through the Gospel of Mark and a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night I said, wait a minute, there's, there's like a whole town where the people line the streets, right? And as Jesus walks through, people are reaching out and touching the hem of his garment. It says, as many as touched it were healed. To touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, they gathered together. That's the kind of God we serve. That, that this, is, this one woman was just an example, one example of many who were healed, who came to understand that to reach out to our God is to be made whole and to be made clean. This is the same way that the prodigal son approaches, and it has to be the way we approach God. That woman was down low and humble and reached out saying, I know I can't earn my way to this, but maybe there will be some grace for me. The prodigal son also, after he went, took his inheritance before his father had even died, burned right through it, found himself hopeless, found himself worthless, said, I need to just go back and be a servant. And as he walked back, he was humbled. He left haughty, head held high, but when he came back, he was broken and humble, and he said, maybe my father will accept me back into his household, probably as a servant, and when his father saw him coming, he took off running, and men did not run, older men especially in that culture, because it was undignified. By the way, also why I don't run, undignified, and so he went running toward him, And he embraced him, and he kissed him, and he he said, I'm going to put rings on your fingers. And, And he didn't say, oh, you look awful, son. I'm horrified. He said, you look awful, son. Let's take off this tattered garment and put a new robe around your shoulders. Kill the fatted calf. It's time for a party. My son, who was dead to me, is now alive with me. This is the one who dared even though he felt worthless and knew he had blown it and sinned against his father, dared to draw near and was accepted by the father. He wasn't wrong about his own sin and his own standing. He was right. And we we all, read Romans 3. There is none who is righteous, no, not one, all together have become worthless. There it is. We're not wrong. He had just underestimated the love that the father had for his own And we do the same thing. Another example from the Old Testament, or the New Testament rather, from the life of Jesus, comes way, way at the beginning, before Jesus' ministry had begun, before Jesus had even begun to walk or talk at the birth. Who is it who comes before the Magi, before the three kings, before anybody to worship Jesus? But shepherds. And it always bugs me, it makes me a little mad when I think about this. In this Nation that was founded entirely from Bedouin shepherds, in which all the greatest heroes and patriarchs are shepherds, right? Abraham, shepherd, Jacob, Israel himself, shepherd, Moses, David, even even Jesus then comes and says, I'm the good shepherd. In that setting, shepherds didn't have a whole bunch of clout or glory or even dignity. They had the opposite. They were made to feel worthless, they were not allowed into the temple to worship because they were gross that was it and so they were far off because they were called worthless and undoubtedly they began to feel worthless but that's not how god saw them and read the beginning of the gospel of matthew it is clear that god sees them when the king of kings enters this world they're the ones who welcome him in they're the ones who are called to go and worship him and given the good tidings of great joy Because when God is bringing His gift of love to the world, He remembers who those shepherds were and were meant to be far better than they do. And the same thing is true of us. Yes, all have sinned. All together have become worthless. But God remembers who we were made to be, who He created us to be. He created us in His image. And that image is fractured, yes. But God sees it. Some of us have really fractured it, though. And maybe that makes you feel far off from God. Maybe you're not just feeling worthless or wretched, but act, actively wicked, right? You, you're, you're saying, I, I, I know my, my thoughts. I know my sins. I know how deep this goes. And when you talk about God loves you, I think, mm, maybe not so much. Because I got some dark stuff and, and you don't know about all of it. You only see the part of me that I show pastor and church. You don't see the real stuff, the, the awful stuff now i say think of matthew matthew who was one of jesus disciples wrote one of the gospels also was a tax collector matthew was far off certainly from jesus he was even far off when he was called he was a different kind of tax collector from zacchaeus and uh, he would sit in a booth he was told that he was worthless he knew that he was wicked And he was not one of the disciples that slowly drew near to Jesus. That was a lot of them. A lot of them were John the Baptist followers first. So they would hear that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching, and they'd say, huh, what's that about? They went out there. He was saying, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And they said, that's good news. Then he said, come and be baptized. He said, we need that. Revival, let's go. Then he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Messiah. They said, well, then we'll follow him. Seamless like. Not so with Matthew. He stayed uh, by day in in his booth, and then by night trying to forget how wicked he was with wine, woman, and song. That was his deal. So when Jesus walked by and said, hey, Matthew, follow me, it doesn't say it in the text, but I would bet green money, I'd bet denarii, that he thought first and foremost, me? And that the other disciples with Jesus said to themselves and each other, Him? Even like the Pharisees standing at a distance said about all of them, them? This is who you want to follow you? Jesus, wicked people, sinners, and Jesus' whole message is, yes, them, because I love them. And they're poor in spirit. Tax collectors, fishermen, prostitutes, and drunks, they don't come to me haughty thinking they are owed something. They come to me genuflecting on their face and worship looking for grace and mercy and that is the position to receive salvation wicked people throughout the bible are brought into the fold and it shows god's great love think of rahab in the book of joshua she is not only a heathen prostitute but she's also in a city that is marked for destruction because of its wickedness but because she feared god and said god would you save me on that day of judgment that's coming god said yes i will save you put that scarlet that scarlet cord hanging from your window and you will be kept and saved alive many people have said that scarlet cord is the the blood that runs through the whole old testament up into the new testament where jesus then died on a cross and shed his blood or think of paul himself who wrote the book of ephesians i mean we know his backstory most of us He he says he was a very righteous guy, very religious, but his religion and his piety was was manifested in persecuting the church, attacking people. He was full of all kinds of malice and self-righteousness. And then Jesus gets a hold of him and changes his heart and really lavishes his love upon him in a way that he can't shut up about it for two seconds for the rest of his life. Now, maybe you are thinking, sure, sure. The Apostle Paul, yeah, he had a rough backstory, But then, when he got saved, he became the greatest saint of all time, right? So so he put it all behind him. Now, my past, it isn't as over the top and wicked as Paul's past, but I'm still struggling with it. I know at prayer meeting, Paul wasn't like, hey, Titus, Timothy, pray for me. I slipped up today and I I went and, and dragged away some Christians in chains and then cast my vote against them that they'd be put to death. You know, help me out here. No, no, he wasn't, he wasn't struggling with those things anymore. And yet I do sometimes struggle with old sins and patterns. Isn't there a ceiling for this? Does God's love hit a wall at some point and say, okay, enough, enough of the wickedness again and again and again. Oh, I've got such good news for you, if that's what you're thinking. You might be backslidden. You might be a, a spiritual failure in this moment and feel very far off from God and wicked and worthless. All of that rolled into one, but God still loves you. Who's the other great apostle of the church? You got Paul, you got Peter, right? Now, right after that brief initial show of humility, away from me, I'm a sinful man, Peter lost that humility somewhere, and he became very proud, and he thought he was the cat's pajamas, which is an old rabbinical saying, Peter began boasting. We've been reading again through the Gospel of Mark. I can't believe how many times we're coming across. And then they argued about who is the greatest. You know, that was that was the, the vibe there. And on the night that Jesus humbles himself the most, the night before he was arrested, the night he was betrayed, we find Peter not humbling himself, but flexing boasting about peter all these other jokers might leave you but i'll stay with you even to the end i'll i'll kill them all or i'll even die with you don't don't worry about it his his fall his sin after following jesus was worse than his sin before and before he was just a regular old fisherman afterward he denied the savior three times and then when jesus had died and risen again and appeared to them you'd think that he'd be like peter could you wait outside and then he would turn to the rest and say, okay, so we're down to ten. Not too bad. That's five out of six. No, he doesn't. He takes Peter aside instead. He says, Peter, come with me. And he walks with him and he, and he asks him, Peter, do you love me? He asks him three times, the same number of times he denied him. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I love you. Take care of my lambs. This tells us not only when we sin and fall, even after we've come to faith, when we make a mess of things, not only does God still love us, He still believes us that we love Him. He's not going to call shenanigans when we sing a praise song because we fell into sin yesterday. I was at that place where that conversation happened. It's a rocky beach with this cute little church behind me on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. If I could keep one memory... From all of my trip, two weeks to Israel, it would be that one. It was so powerful. And yet, I could think of just about any day of my life, and wherever I was, the same thing was going on. Jesus was saying, do you love me? And I was saying, you know I do. Oh, you know I've messed up, but you know I love you. And he says, well, then feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. And he shouldn't have caught him off guard. This goes all the way back in the Old Testament. Think about Miriam, the sister of Moses. When she decided she didn't like Moses' new wife, she was from Ethiopia, she didn't like it, there was probably some really nasty stuff going on in her heart in that moment, and it spilled out of her in this boasting and vaulting herself up. Has God only spoken through Moses, not through me? And she tried to make herself as important as Moses, and God said, not happening, no. And he said, you three, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, come here, outside the camp, I want to talk to you. And there he struck her with leprosy. Does God hate her now? Is that what's going on? Is she messed up and he's rejected her? This woman who we saw to be a very godly woman earlier throughout the book of Exodus, the one leading the singing of all the women as they're going through on dry land, through the Red Sea, while God is actively delivering them, she's the worship leader. Has God forgotten her? No. Revelation 3, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. God loves her, yet, and after seven days outside the camp, He brought her back in, now all the more aware of both His holiness and His love. And perhaps you're hearing that and thinking, well, okay, but if it was just one spectacular crash and burn like that, and then I learned my lesson, and then everything was okay, that'd be one thing. But this is like repeated, Pastor. Come on, there's, there is some limit, is there not? I point you to John Mark. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark, uh, he doesn't name himself in the Gospel, neither does John uh, the Apostle, but but, uh, he was the young guy, the youth, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night Jesus was betrayed. And he ran for it, like most of the disciples. At least Peter pulled the sword and ran toward the danger. Even if he was misguided, at least he did that. No, John Mark was like... I'm out. He turned to run, and he was naked except for wrapped in a linen garment. I would advise against that when you're going out. Mask up at least, but you know, the linen garment, he, he was naked under there, and so one of the soldiers grabbed for him, got the garment, and he was like, never mind, and he ran out naked. So he's naked, running away in the garden, on the night of temptation, when Jesus stood up under the devil's tempting... I mean, if I had uh, time for another sermon, that will preach, right? Naked in the garden, failing, running away. Bring us back to Genesis chapter 3. Well, you'd think after that, when he saw the risen Christ, and his mom owned the house where the upper room was, so undoubtedly he was there on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. You'd think after that, all right, it was smooth sailing. No, 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 we, we bump into him again in the book of Acts, remember? He's with Paul and Barnabas, and then John Mark is along for the ride to help them, and he bails on that trip, and Paul's so angry, he basically says, I want nothing to do with him again, but Barnabas says, no, I I think God's still working in this guy, and he made a mistake, sure, but so he and Barnabas go to Cyprus and do amazing ministry for years and years, and near the end of Paul's life, he does a 180 on John Mark. And recognizes I was I was hasty. That that guy he he serves God with passion. Yeah, he messed up and he messed up again. But let me look at the story of Israel from beginning to end, and then the church. I mean, this is the story. It's we are faithless, he is faithful. Read the book of Hosea. God says to the prophet Hosea, "You're going to get married." He says, "All right, you're going to marry a lady named Gomer." Oh, she must be from out of town, right? Because the only Gomer I know is a. Uh, that's the one he marries her in obedience she's faithful for a short time and then she's all over the place with every guy in town and every time god says she's going to come back to you you take her back again you take her back again do you see what it's like to be me hosea you see how much I love you that you are whoring with other gods and worshiping yourselves and gratifying the flesh and turning your back on me and I take you back again because I love you so very much. You might be, you might be stuck in that kind of cycle. You might, be, you might be stuck in bondage and deceived and thinking, well, there are some harsh words in the Bible for people in my situation. Is it hopeless for me? God is not content to leave you there, and he, won't, he can't join you there, but He will call you out and rescue you if you reach out for Him. He is not far from you. Again, this is the whole story of the Bible. Those in bondage set free. The Exodus. Boom, there it is. The, the event of the Old Testament. Then go into Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene, of whom He freed from seven demons. Seven demons He cast out of her. And you got your Dan Brown and all the weirdos like, oh yeah, there was some romantic thing with with Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Just look at their relationship. No, he set her free from seven demons. She loved him with a purer love than we can imagine. And she would have followed him to the very, she did follow him to the very end when all the men ran away because he had set her free from bondage. And you know, I look around at the church visible sometimes these days and I start to lose hope. Like the Ephesians were, and I need those words of, of comfort and reminder that God is bigger than all this. But when in the world and the culture and even in the church, there are all these false ideas about what love is. Oh, sure, God loves us, but then we redefine love or we redefine grace. Love is God just leaves us to do whatever we want. Grace is God gives us license and says, just go nuts. Just chase after all of the, the, the flesh and, and all the sin you want. I don't care. Some of you hearing my voice right now might be playing that game in your mind. Oh yeah, God's love, God's love. And I've twisted a little bit so that God's love and God's grace are exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, may it never be. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, that that is a descending, I think. There's a real sense in our culture of, of bondage and deception and darkness. And we'll talk more about this when we get to Ephesians chapter five, when we get into the armor of God and all of this stuff. But God is not in bondage himself because we are he will set you free if you call out to him and reach out to him so look at at Jonah Jonah redefined what God's love meant and God's grace so that it meant me first and foremost and what I want and my comfort so I'm prophet right so I will go to people who I deem worthy and I will bring the message that God wants me to bring and then he says oh yeah those idol worshiping wicked gentiles go there Mm, I think I know better than God I think I know better than God what his love and his grace should look like. Finds himself inside the belly of a large fish. And God's like, hey, sit in there for a while and be partially digested and think about this. And maybe reconsider what it means that I love and that I save. And that I will bless all nations through the seed of the woman. Or or think of Eve. She kind of went in the opposite direction. And this is where we see today, I think, most of the time. She looked at the fruit and saw that it was pleasing to the eye, and probably tasted good, and thought to herself, well, this very polite serpent insists that this is okay, that if God really loved me, he'd want me to gratify every single appetite of my flesh. In fact, he'd encourage it. He'd celebrate it with me. And so she took it. And then finally, Adam shows up like, oh, that looks good, and takes a bite as well. And here we are now. And yet, it's the very same chapter. It's verses later. God doesn't say, all right, I'm done with you. I'm going to go off and create somebody on some other planet. He says, no, you, you're under a curse. Thorns, pain in childbirth, sweat of the brow, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of uh, infighting between you, even within your marriages. But then in Genesis 3.15, even in the midst of the curse, here comes the silver lining, the promise, I'm going to send the one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head. And He will save you from all this. He will reverse the curse. That's what this is about. What Jesus said to Nicodemus: God so loved the world. And I think we're so familiar with that verse that we miss a lot of it. We miss even what that means. I've heard it. I've even seen it translated in actual Bible translations. God loved the world so much. Like if you're like eating uh, lunch and you're like, I so love these tacos. God so loved the world. No, it's not talking about quantity of love. It it means God loved the world like so. God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world. He sent his only begotten son. And remember, this this verse that we all know starts with, for God so loved the world. What's the for therefore? Pointing back to the verse before. (laughs) Too corny, Zach. The verse before is what? Just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who look to him will be saved. He's talking about his death on the cross for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, in that way, by Jesus dying on the cross that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's talking about the quality of love, the type of love, agape love, that we can barely grasp, not the quantity of love, now, the quantity of love is important as well. In Ephesians 3, we're going to get to that. Uh, remember uh, Ephesians 3, 17, 18, you've heard it sung in songs before. He wants them to know that Christ may dwell in their hearts, that you, being rooted and grounded in the love, may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. He wants them to know how much God loves them, and not only to comprehend it, but to know it, to truly know it, But here in John chapter 3, he's talking about the quality, not the quantity, the type of love. It's the kind of love that says you turned away from me yet again, and I come to you, and I embrace you, and I kill the fatted calf, and I love you despite all of this. We can't barely comprehend this. So we may be far off, wicked, wretched, worthless, backslidden, trapped in bondage and deception. And maybe as I went through that list, one of those things connected with you and you thought, yeah, that's kind of me. I kind of feel separate from God. I'm in that category. Listen, all of us are in all those categories apart from Christ. Every one of us is far off and separate and wicked and trapped all of us continually will turn back towards sin like a dog returns to its vomit, the fool to his folly, and all of us have said, Lord, I've been a fool today. Forgive me again. And the enemies there whispering, no, 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 you hit the limit. No more love, no more forgiveness. It's all done. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that He gave it all it's not It's not a little offer. It doesn't say, you do your half, I do my half. It says, I will make of you a new creation. Yes, you fall down and say, I'm a sinful man. Just get away from me. Just, let's be far off from each other. And he says, no, draw near. And to remember these things, our standing, is helpful. And I, I preached this this morning because in Ephesians, in the last few weeks, we have been looking at where we were. And there's a lot of stuff about how sinful we are and a lot of stuff about how separated from God. And I know that people can get a little burned out by that and think, "Well, is this what our religion is? Is this what our tradition is? It's about how bad we are and hitting ourselves with all this guilt and all this all this stuff?" No. To remember where we were and who we are apart from Christ helps us to remember the quality and quantity of love that he shows us, the agape love that is infinite, how deep, how wide, how broad, how far. When Jesus was eating in the home of Simon the Pharisee, a woman walked right in the door who did not live there. She'd been in lots and lots of houses in that town, but she didn't live here. She was well-known as a sinful woman. And everyone pulled back like, oh, what are you doing here? She got down on her knees and she wept. In fact, the word used in the Greek is she rained. It was a, a downpour from her eyes onto his feet. She washed his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, and everyone went, oh, except Jesus. And he knew their wicked thoughts. If he knew what kind of woman this is, that she's a sinner, he would not let her touch him. And he told a parable that ended with this moral. Whoever is forgiven much, loves much. She was forgiven much. Therefore, she loves me much. And this is a beautiful thing she has done if you've been forgiven much you've been shown much love love him much don't let the enemy whisper into your ear that it's hopeless don't listen to the lies and listen maybe you've heard this a billion times that god loves you and you think okay i've got it yes god loves me sometimes i wonder if aaron and kelvin hear me say again and again and again i love you and they're like okay guy i get it you love me but i don't think so Maybe you haven't heard it. Maybe what you've heard your whole life is that God is this angry, angry deity up in heaven with lightning bolts just waiting for an excuse to smite you. Either way, I want to tell you again, God loves you. And He so loves you that He sent His only Son to die on a cross that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you've put your faith in Him but you've been feeling far off, I want you to remember that. And reach out for Him. If you have never put your faith in Him because you thought, He wouldn't want me. I'm worthless. I'm wicked. I'm, I'm a screw-up. Reach out to Him now. Grope in the dark, like Paul said on Mars Hill. He is not far from you. He will receive you, accept you, wash you, draw you near to Himself. He will put that new robe on your shoulders like the Father did on the, the prodigal son and a ring on your finger and He will kill the fatted calf and He will welcome you back into His arms because of Our God is love, and he loves you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a a Bible that is chock full of these lessons that just teach us one real clear message. God loves us. Our God loves us. Our Savior Jesus died for us that by the blood of Christ, those who were far off could be drawn near. Lord, if there is someone hearing my voice right now who has not put their faith in Jesus, I pray your spirit would convict them That they would know that they need to believe and they need to bring their sin to You. That You would take it from their shoulders and and cast it as far away as the east is from the west. Lord, I pray that that You would, if there is someone who is a believer, but they have let the enemy put a wedge between them and You and they have been wallowing in prayerlessness and spiritual distance and, and feeling worthless, Lord, that they would be set free from that. Just like The Lord Jesus set Mary Magdalene free from those seven devils. I pray you would set anyone who is struggling with that free from that kind of thought, free from that kind of lie, and that they would remember the truth. Our God is a God who loves and saves, who came to seek and save the lost, who walked into the house of the sinner and said, salvation has come to this house today. Lord, we thank you that we can gather here at Judson in this house of the Lord, and that salvation comes to this house each and every time we gather together, that you are present with us. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember that and we would walk out of this place filled all the more with that reminder of of who you are and who we are meant to be, that we have been forgiven much and that we would love much. Amen.